going through Exodus for 2023, except for a, a break during the summer, and then we've gotten back into it. Now, here's the good news. Um, we're going to get through here before Advent. So we're going to get done chapter 40 before Advent starts, but 32 itself is, is going to take a little while. Um, we started last week by looking at the people have been given the law, they've been given the Ten Commandments, they've been given ways in which to live to represent God to the nations. They've been rescued and, and, and they've been provided for and they've responded in unity saying, yes, we will, we will do what you have called us to. We will be obedient. Except that doesn't last very long. And much like with us, sometimes we have good intentions, but the world, our culture around us can be so enticing. And so Moses has gone up to the mountain to, to kind of converse with God, um, and, and the people have been waiting at the bottom, and they go, man, Moses has been gone a long time. And they start to revert back to that, their kind of Egyptian kind of cultural imprint that they have on them. And Egypt was a polytheistic nation. They worshipped many gods. And, and, and the, of course, the first commandment that God had given the Israelites was, you shall have no other gods before me. But after some days go by and some uncertainty happens and they're not sure what to do, is they start to go back to that old way of thinking and they, they say to Aaron, and they, you know what, let's, let's make us some gods that we can worship. And so this golden calf moment comes and they fashion this calf and they cover it in gold and they bow down to it, they worship to it, they offer sacrifices to it and they say, this, this is our gods who have brought us up out of Egypt. And we looked at the reality of the devastation of that moment, of how hurtful that is to the one true God who has rescued them. And how they're, they're saying, well, well, we'll still worship you, Yahweh. We'll still follow you. But we want to do it on our terms. And we want to worship you and we want to worship this, this golden calf God. We want to do things our way. And of course, my point in all of that was we're no different today than them back then. As we've been given clearly in the word of God who Jesus is. Merv quoted something that Jesus said. Is Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And then what does he say? No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes it clear there's only one way. And he loves us desperately. And Jesus ultimately paid our penalty. He died on the cross in our place because of his love for us. But also in the midst of that, he's saying, but this is the only way. You, you, can't, you can't do it multiple ways. And as we were closing last week, somebody came up to me afterwards who will remain nameless, but they're in this building. I told them I was going to quote them, but not tell them, tell you who they were. We had a conversation, and I was so proud of this individual. Not that I'm not proud of all of you. But I was so proud of this individual because they were looking at Scripture, and they were reading it deeply and noticing things that, that maybe are not as obvious. As, as, and sometimes maybe when we get told them, we realize just how obvious they are. But the statement was made um, that he said, this gold that the calf was made from, where did that gold come from? Does anybody remember? The plundering of Egypt that God said, I'm going to give you gifts so that your lengthy journey in the wilderness 
you can make it through that time. And those gifts were meant to be used for God. And what did they get turned into? Idolatry against God. God has given us good gifts, good things to use, and we begin to worship them. Jordan said it this morning. We look around and we see the mountains and we begin to worship the mountains instead of the one who created the mountains. And we looked at our identity last week and, and what the reality is that if we place our identity in, in our career, in our job, in our sexuality, and you know, fill in the blank, there's many things you could pick from, and we go, that's who I am, we're, we're going to be left wanting because it will never fulfill us and it will never satisfy us. God has said you, if, if you have confessed Christ as Lord, he has said that you are a son or a daughter of the king. That's who you are. And when God gives you good gifts, like the gold that he gave to the Israelites, he gave them with purpose to be used in good things. Well, we in our time, we may, maybe we don't fashion a golden calf and place it in our home and fall down and bow down and worship it. But if we evaluate our own lives as what things take the place of idolatry, we just maybe worship it in a more subtle way. What about sports, our work? What about your car? What about the most prized possession in your home? What about technology? What about social media? All of these things are or can be good gifts that God has given us. And all of them are meant to be used in a context where God is first and everything else is second. But how often do we say, God, I'll worship you, but I'll worship you now here, but right now I want to do this thing. I'm going to go accomplish that. I'm going to pour myself into this, but I'll come back to you. Don't worry, and I'll worship you. Maybe, maybe we think of it as on Sunday, I'll give to you, but the rest of the week, I'm going to give to me. If we looked at where we spent our time, at where our stresses come from, have these things not become idols in the same way? Now, I say all of this because as we enter into the next few verses, beginning in verse 7, we have to have that context in our minds to really grasp what's going to happen because these next few verses are really tough. If you remember back in July, we preached through a, a series on prayer. And I made a comment in, in that, that series about how God doesn't change his mind. And we're going to read a, a verse um, this morning about that again. But we're, we talked about God's sovereignty and his plans and his purpose and how he knows all things. And we look kind of at a broad scriptural view of that. But this morning we're going to read something that makes it sound like God's going to throw a temper tantrum. And that he's going to argue with Moses. And Moses is going to argue with God and convince God to change his mind. And, and if we just read it without studying it and move on, we can be very confused about who God is and what prayer is. So I mentioned this last week as I hope that you would pray for me. Because I want to be clear here. That the, the more that I studied this, the more clear it became to me of how simple it is. And yet, if I'm not careful in my words, I, I might confuse us. And so I don't want to do that this morning. So let's read these verses together. And with the help of a few commentators and, and a few specific other points of Scripture, I hope that this becomes very clear to us. So here's verse 7 of chapter 32. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it. And said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. It's a very bizarre text. Sounds very much like we can just plead with God and get him to change his mind. Here's the question, though. Do we actually think that we know better than God? Do we think that God forgets the promises that he makes? When we wrestled through God's sovereignty, what we came to conclusion on in July is that God knows all things, And that God has a perfect will and a perfect plan to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. And here, that seems to contradict that at first reading. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he? He not fulfill it. And so we have that on one side, and then we have this text, which seems to be saying something very different. Or at least implying something different. So this is where study and really investigating what's happening and stepping back from the moment and looking scripture as a whole becomes very helpful. One of the things that I found is that commentators point out that there's three things that God says. He wants his wrath to burn hot, that he might consume his people, and that he might make a great nation out of Moses. However, in the following verses, Moses' response, he has three oppositions against each of those. Moses appeals to God that it was actually God and not Moses who brought them out of Egypt, which is obviously true. He asks why the Egyptians should hear of God's uh, not being faithful in the rescue of his people, which he promised. And he reminds God of his promise to Abraham, not to Moses. So there's a pattern happening. God hasn't forgotten the promises that he's made. God doesn't just lose his cool and wants to destroy and smite the people who are against him. In fact, when you think about it, and when you go backwards a little bit, is this the first time that they've turned from God? Hardly. Every few minutes, they seem to be going, okay, God, thanks, you did this, but my way, please. This isn't as though all of a sudden, this, this worship of the calf suddenly put them over the edge. This has been a 
process that's been happening this whole time. What was most helpful to me was one commentator talked about it in this way. And maybe this is an obvious statement, but I think it's one that we need to wrestle with. God is working to accomplish his purposes through very imperfect people. God is working to accomplish his perfect purposes through very imperfect people. God is reaching down into human history and orchestrating his will, but we have a free will and we have a free choice and we can respond to that and we can try and thwart God's plans, but according to Job, which we looked at in July, Job says nobody can thwart God's plan. And so when we think about the fact that God is working with imperfect people, perhaps sometimes he communicates to us in ways that we need to hear so that we do the things that need to be done properly. Every parent knows this with your own kids. How many of you have more than one kid? How many of you have parented those children exactly the same? Please say no to that. Is Every child is different. Every child is unique, and every child responds differently. I remember being, um, and maybe you can have this memory too, as being part of a sports team. And you have a coach, and a good coach knows how to coach his players the way that they need to hear. And to one individual, he gives more encouragement, and to one, he pushes a little bit harder. If you do one coaching style, one way to all different types of people, what happens? The Calgary Flames prove it last year. I'm sorry, that was a low blow. Um, Sorry, low blow, low blow is God knows how he needs to communicate to us in ways. And so sometimes when we read something that seems to contradict the rest of Scripture, we need to say maybe we're misinterpreting the passage. Maybe we need to see it more. Think of the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah that he's going to destroy Nineveh unless what? Unless they repent. How, according to the book of Romans, how how are we going to repent? Well, we need to hear the gospel. So God says, Jonah... Go and preach to Nineveh. Now God's, we can think of it this way, God threatened that he's going to destroy all of Nineveh unless they will repent. So he calls Jonah to go and do it. What does Jonah do? Hightails it the other way, right? We learn in the last chapter of Jonah why he does it. Do you remember why? Because he didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He says, God, I know that you're a God of mercy and you're gracious and you're slow to anger. Essentially, this is my paraphrase now. He's saying, I knew that you would find a way for them to hear the gospel, repent and be saved. And I didn't want that. Think God could have called someone a little more helpful? God reaches down to a very broken prophet who only wants Israel to be saved, nobody else. And God could have just said, I'm just going to choose somebody else. You can just get swallowed by a whale and we'll just call it game over. But in his mercy, he's not only saving the Ninevites, he's trying to appeal to Jonah that Jonah's heart would be softened. Now the book ends and we don't know. And I think it's written that way on purpose. So that it's a mirror for us to go, will I? Will I be like Jonah and will I be angry about the goodness of God in other people's lives and wish that it was only for me? Or will I help? See, God could have chosen to save Nineveh anyway, but notice he says Nineveh is going to be destroyed unless they repent. 
God's not threatening that, oh, Jonah, if you run the other direction, which is probably what he's thinking, if I run the other direction, they won't repent, they'll be destroyed, I'll get what I want. And God goes, actually, no, I'm a little more powerful than that, Jonah. It's not your will that's going to be done here, it's mine. In fact, Jesus prayed the same thing, didn't he, in Gethsemane? He knew full well that there was only one way for salvation to be bought, and that was by his death on the cross. And in a moment of his humanity displayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him praying, God, if there's another way, let it be. But not my will. Yours be done. God reaches in and uses a very imperfect person to accomplish what his good and perfect will was. And his good and perfect will was that the Ninevites would be saved, not that they would be destroyed. And so how we read things matters. What God is calling of here to Moses is he's saying this is, Moses, will you be the leader that I have called you to be? God challenges Moses to step in into intercessory prayer and into leadership to stand between God and him for the people. God becomes, or sorry, Moses becomes the intermediary between God and the Israelite people. Does that sound familiar? If we read the Old Testament closely, what are we supposed to see? Jesus. All of it exists to point us to Jesus. And there's moments, we, we would call it theologically, we would say that Moses is a type of Christ in this moment. Or maybe in a more uh, modern way of saying it, we would say that Moses is foreshadowing Jesus. And it's not only Moses that we see this. We see this in many different biblical characters that God is painting a picture for us to see so that when Jesus comes, we can go, here's the one who was talked about. Here's the one. It's clear. He is our one true mediator. Now, God tests lots of people in the Bible. Who can you think of before Moses that God tests? Abraham, that's an obvious one, isn't it? And we read that story, and it can be confusing because God tells Abraham, he says, you know, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation, and he's too old for that to happen. But miraculously, his wife gives birth to a son, and all of a sudden, God says, okay, you're going to sacrifice him to me now. And we, the reader, look at this, and we go, that's awful. Like God would never ask him to do that. That doesn't make any sense. And we can put our interjections in there like crazy. But what we see, and it says it right in the text, is that God tested Abraham. Now, it's written really interesting because after when Abraham says, I will do, I will be faithful, and he reaches up and he's about to kill his son, God goes, no, no, no. Now I know you fear the Lord. Did God not know that already? It's written for us that we would see it because it's Abraham needing to be pushed to that moment where push comes to shove. It's no longer hypothetical. It's actually practical. The same is true for us. Do we believe and trust that God is good? Do we believe that only through Jesus will we find salvation? Do we believe that only in him do we find purpose and meaning? We can say that hypothetically, but God needs to test us. And that's why he brings circumstances to us that seem unbearable. That's the book of Job. It's written so that we would understand that even in hardship and in pain, God has purpose because he's growing us. He's stretching us so that we would become more Christ-like. 
And we might wish that he chose another way to do that, but the reality is, is God created us. He gets to choose that. God tests many people through the scriptures. Moses gets tested here. Are you going to be the leader that I've called you to be? Our Alan Cole writes it this way. He says, the price was only to abandon his shepherd's calling and to let Israel go. Their own behavior had earned their rejection, as he is reminded here. But no true shepherd could do this. So comes the intercessory prayer of Moses. He's been told, you are going to lead this people into the promised land. That's the promise he's been given. And if he's waiting for the first moment for the people to just grumble and, and, and lose their way, and then Moses goes, great, perfect, destroy them, start over with me, thank you very much. He probably did wish that a few times. We actually see that in the text where sometimes he goes, why are you grumbling against the Lord? Don't you know he's rescued you? Don't you know he's brought you out? Don't you know he's going to fulfill his promises to you? And what we're going to see actually in the text, not this week, but next week, is that Moses actually offers his life in place of the Israelites. Who does that remind us of? Now, he can't, right? He can't die on, or he can't die for the sins of Israel because he has his own sins to die for. He needed a mediator as well, and so that's why it's only foreshadowing. It's a type. It's not the completed fullness of it. But it would have been easy, and I think we can all probably relate to this, is when we read this and God says, you know what, this people are just so stubborn and stiff-necked is the term. I really like that. Stiff-necked, you should, maybe don't call your children that. Um, but he says these people, they, they don't listen. That's true, but they never did listen. Let, my, let me destroy them and I'll begin again with you, Moses. Moses is being tested to say, do you want your name to be great? Or do you want God's name to be great? That's the same test that exists for us now, isn't it? How much work do we put in to have a big name for ourselves so, so that we were successful in business or successful in sports or successful in whatever other area? We want people to know us. We talk about our legacy. Well, Paul says it this way. I'm only going to boast in one thing, and what is that? The cross of Jesus. Moses recognizes that he is being tested and Nicole, again, puts it perfectly when he says this. Put briefly, this prayer is an appeal to God by the consistency of his own nature, a declaration of confidence in his revealed will. Moses appeals to say, God, it is your great name. And, and you've proven this to the Egyptians, so, so why would you destroy them now that the Egyptians could go, oh, oh, he was just a, he's just a vindictive, angry God. And in fact, every polytheistic nation, they believed that all gods were angry and the only way to appease their anger was to what? Sacrifice and mostly human sacrifice. And Moses argues and he's saying, God, no, it's your character. Have you ever reminded God of his character thinking that he forgot it? Or are you reminding God's character because you don't feel it? There's a deeply personal, emotional reality there. God, I know you love me, but right now I don't feel like you do. I know scripture says that you're close with me, but right now I feel alone. 
Moses is calling out, God, you have promised. You are faithful. You will fulfill your promises. So Moses goes into intercessory prayer for the people. Now here's the question, and we talked about this back in July. I asked this, does prayer change things? See, this is where we go on a journey of maturity and trying to figure out what do we mean by change things? If we're talking about, well, in this moment, God convinces, or sorry, Moses convinces God not to do the thing that God really wants to do, then we misunderstand prayer completely. But if by this we mean that even in the midst of temptation and testing, that God will change our hearts to become more Christ-like, then yes, prayer changes everything. We can't convince God to change his plans because his plans are far better than our own. And I think hindsight, the older we get, the more we see this where we look back and we go, I'm so glad I didn't get that. That's all I wanted, and I begged God for it, and I pleaded with him, but he gave me something different. And thank the Lord for that. God's plans are perfect. But just like with Jonah, God calls Moses in here, and it's written in a way so that we might see the tension here, that we might see that Moses doesn't just go, "Eh, God, just do whatever you want, it's fine. You see, here's the thing is we're called as Christ's ambassadors to love the people that God has placed in our path. Could Moses be a shepherd and a leader if he was just waiting for them to be destroyed? Wouldn't be a very good leader. Moses loves the people. He's willing to offer his life in place even even though that's not a fair trade. Even though to this point in the wilderness, Moses has been fairly righteous and the people have been nothing but awful. And he still becomes that meteor and that go-between. These things are written for us so that we might see the tension here. We might see the fickleness of people, of our own hearts, and how God is calling us into things that matter, things that will change, not him, but change us and change the people around us. You think for a moment here that when, Moses, or when God says to Moses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill them all and I'm going to start over with you so that your name can be great. Do you think that was maybe a bit of an enticing idea? Well, same is true of us. And I know I've already said it, but we need to just remind ourselves of this over and over and over again, is we exist to bring glory not to ourselves, but to God. And if we're seeking fame, if we're seeking approval, if we're seeking to be accepted, then our motivations are all twisted and need to be refocused on him. Douglas Stewart writes it this way, and don't worry, I'm going to say a word that I'll define because I didn't know what it meant either. Stewart says this, much to his credit, that's Moses, much to his credit, Moses revealed no desire to replace Abraham and no interest in easing his own problems by seeing the recalcitrant Israelites obliterated. Recalcitrant, basically, I mean, that's a word I had to look up, but basically it means they're a stubborn bunch of whiners. Again, my paraphrase. I mean that as respectfully as I can. But Moses is looking at this and going, man, they're causing me grief. They're causing me problems. This is probably the part that convicted me the most as I thought about intercessory prayer. Is It's much easier to pray for people in their circumstances when it's, they've been wronged. Right? 
when they're the victim, when cancer has happened and, and we want to plead with God that God would save them. But when there's people causing us grief and pain, it's a lot more difficult to intercessory prayer for them. God, would you show them mercy and grace and kindness? I think usually what we pray for is, God, would you give some justice in this moment? Right? Even when we see wars breaking out, are, are we pleading with God that he would show mercy to the perpetrator as well as grace to the one who's being attacked? Or do we only pray for grace to the one attacked and that God would show the other person what they need to happen? of the time, I love my job. Love it. 5% of the time, I want to run for the hills. And that 5%, it's because my own life is being affected in a negative way. And my own selfishness comes out and goes, I don't need none of this. Do I do what Moses did? Do I say, God, this is your church and you love them. And you want them to grow in their faith and their knowledge of you. Or do I say, God, these people are causing me a lot of grief. Can I start over somewhere else? Again, 95% of the time I don't. But 5% of the time I have that thought. And I need to come under the lordship of Christ. And I need to remind myself that this is his church, not mine. That these are his people, not mine. That he loves them far more than I can understand. And even when we fight, even when we are treating each other horribly, we're still creating the image of God and we're still loved by God and God still wants to use us for his good. This is what we see in the text here. It's a test for Moses. Moses, do you love the people? Or are you just seeking a better circumstance for yourself? God is speaking in a way to us that we might read this and understand it and feel that tension and go, yeah, you should destroy them. Because, man, they suck sometimes. And then we're supposed to let that shine a mirror up to us and go, but God, thank you that you haven't destroyed me the times that I suck. Because, man, am I selfish. Man, do I seek my own will or my own goodwill at the expense of others at times. And we're going to see this next week, but I want to highlight this as we move into it. What happens here is not when it says that God relented. It doesn't mean that God went, okay, Moses, you're right. I'll just let, it's all good. No problem. I was just, I was just acting crazy. There's some devastating consequences that come. And that's going to be a tough week next week again as we wrestle through that. 3,000 people are going to be slaughtered for their unwillingness to repent. That sounds horrible, and that sounds, how do we process that? How do we put a, a loving God in the midst of that? That's what we're going to talk about next week. But my point as we go to that is that God doesn't just go, okay, Moses, yeah, you're right. God has consequences for disobedience and unrepentance. But what we're actually going to see in the text more, if we're willing to see it, is that God is incredibly merciful to people who don't deserve mercy. There's a doctrine that we call the depravity of man. And I think this doctrine is something that we have really watered down in today's world. And so what we really think is that we deserve good. 
But it goes against what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that all of us deserve one thing and one thing only. And what is that? Death. But God in his goodness and in his mercy and in his grace offers us forgiveness. And we're going to see it next week as that forgiveness is actually offered to the people. But there's people that refuse to repent and the consequences of that are devastating. But it's not as though God doesn't offer his forgiveness to them. But they go, no, we're going to do it on our terms, not yours. When we think of a text like this, when we come across something that seems like it contradicts kind of the rest of Scripture as a whole, we got to study it. we got to wrestle with it. I say this all the time, but if you don't have a study Bible, get one. There's lots of really great commentaries online. If you want to come to the library here, my library, come and grab it. If you come to a place in Scripture where you're wrestling, don't just be okay with it. Or don't just ignore it and pretend like it's not there. Wrestle with it. Because that's when your faith in Jesus is really going to grow, when it's hard and you're not sure how to process it, but you fight for it. God is not a man that he lies, or a son of man that he changes his mind. But he is working with very imperfect people like you and I to accomplish great and wonderful purposes. But he has to enter into the mess to do it. And he communicates to us in ways that we understand. That's what's happening in the text here. Moses passes the test, at least now. We're going to see later he doesn't pass all of the tests. But he says, God, it's your name. It's your great name. It's your promises. I want you to receive the honor and the glory, not me. May that be our prayer moving forward. God, thank you. Thank you that you write scriptures in in unique ways and sometimes in ways that need a second and third and fourth reading. That we would really study it, that we would understand your character, your love, and your grace. And yet you also are a God of justice. And God, I am thankful that I'm not the one that has to determine when you are going to be merciful and when you are going to show justice. Thank you that you alone are going to do that on your terms. As we think of intercessory prayer, as we think of entering in, sometimes it can be so easy to be like, well, if you know all things, why bother praying? Because our prayers are not about the end result as much as they are about the process. That our hearts would be softened, that we would see your goodness, that we would begin to love the people that you have placed around us, that we would offer them mercy and grace. God, you have called us into intercessory prayer for many in the world right now, for many in our community right here, for some in our homes. God, would we see them the way that Moses sees the people here, despite how it negatively might affect us at times, that we would love them and that we would want them to come to faith in Jesus and that you would show them mercy and grace. God, as we begin again into the next section of dealing with the consequences, as awful as they are, may we also choose to see the whole picture and see your grace and your mercy offered. God, help us to submit under you 
Help us to not try and find a secret way to follow you or some way to mostly follow you, but also get what we want. Help us to see that only in following you will we get anything that's worth it in the end. God, thank you for these folks here who love you, who are on journey of maturing and becoming more like Christ. Would you grow them in their faith this week? And would we love each other the way that you have loved us? Go with us today now. We love you. Amen.